0: Is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: G'day Fiona Broom with you today for the country half hour. We've got shorter shows all this week while the cricket is on. So I'm with you today until five minutes past one o'clock. Well, the January Wiener calf markets are continuing. We'll find out how quality. And perhaps most importantly for many of you, prices are going. That's ahead on the show today. And why have more than 100 farmers formed a new group in the west of the state? Stick around to find out what's going on there. Well, those storms continued across the evening and into the morning, I think, in some parts of the state. We'll get some more details on that from the Bureau in just a moment. You can let me know how you've been getting on with your weather and your rainfall, 0467 842 722. Or maybe you're a bit over the weather. If so, you can let me know what you're up to today. I got a lovely pic yesterday from Edwin at Mansfield of his Hereford wieners getting ready for sale. 0467 842 722 is the text line. You're listening to The Hour Big- on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's cross now to the Weather Bureau. We've got uh, Senior Forecaster Joanna Hughes with us today. G'day, Joanna. G'day, Fiona. How's your day going? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a little bit steamy in the studio here in Sale. How are we looking uh, elsewhere in the state? How are we going after the, the storms yesterday?
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it's still a little humid out there but uh, a touch cooler and a touch less humid than uh, than yesterday obviously we saw some pretty significant impacts from storms overnight last night particularly through central victoria um just i've got a couple of numbers here in terms of the rainfall and the winds that we saw so um for a few uh, locations around um sort of heronsley sort of Strathbogie, kelvin view those um those parts of the world we saw sort of 40 to um, even up to almost 60 millimetres falling in in the space of one hour um, from storms uh, in that part of the world. And in sort of the half-hour time period, we had um, uh, 34 millimetres um, at Seymour in half an hour last night and 33 millimetres in half an hour at um, Warrenbane, 25 or so uh, in half an hour at Yoroa and, um, and 24... Um, at Pukapunil, um in a half hour period as well so um, those kinds of rainfall totals are um, yeah, very, very significant in that those short periods that we see them falling so some of those um, sort of fall into the one in a hundred years sort of type um, type bracket of, of just how quickly that that rain fell in those those areas so oh, wow. sort awesome. Of Yeah, so we saw some uh, flash flooding um, impacts and uh, and some impacts from the winds as well. So in terms of the observations that we got for winds, the the peak gusts that we recorded at um, at Bureau of Meteorology sites were 109 kilometres per hour gust um, about 9:20 last night at Mangalore, um, and 98 kilometres per hour gusting at Parkapunyal Lion Hill um, about nine o'clock last night as well. So um, that's the story of uh, what's happened with the with the weather overnight last night. Um, I'm sure there's some other people who have some um, some rain information from from where they are around the state um i've sort of already touched off on it um but some of those the highest totals for the 24 hours to 9 a.m this morning were yeah waterhouse reservoir um taking the taking home the uh, the gold medal for for rainfall that was 62.2 um, millimeters um in the 24 hours to 9 a.m this morning um yes all associated with those storms more moving moving through um in terms of today and what's on the cards, um, we are expecting the potential for some more thunderstorm activity up in northwest Victoria, um, looking to be fairly run-of-the-mill, but the potential for some more severe thunderstorm activity up in northeast Victoria around albury rodonga Um, this afternoon, so with the potential for more heavy rainfall and gusty winds as well. Um, Thankfully, as we head into tomorrow, uh, things are looking to ease off um, in terms of storms and rainfall for the next couple of days, so just a a few showers around and some fairly run-of-the-mill thunderstorms just up in northern parts of the state. And as we head into uh, Sunday and into Monday, we have um, another system moving through, bringing more potential for for heavy rainfall, so that's looking to um, sort of reach western parts of the state on sunday um and then move over central and eastern parts on monday as well so it's a big band of band of rain so uh definitely the potential for some some flooding with that um and then embedded thunderstorms within it as well so it's uh, it's all picking up again as we head into the start of next week so keep your eye out on any warnings that might be issued on incoming days to um keep you up to date on what's happening
1: are there any rivers that you're keeping an eye on at the minute
0: um, so we're having a look at the information as it's coming in. Um, we'll probably have more of an idea of specific um, rivers uh, probably probably from tomorrow onwards. Um, but particularly up in the northeast, it is very wet already. Um, and uh, we do have a, a few flooding impacts that are uh, ongoing from rainfall that we saw last night through um, the Loddon of Oka um, and uh, through Seven Creeks as well. Um, so they're all minor flooding that they're on the easing trend um but uh, as we head into next week it looks like we'll have more flooding picking up in in more places so um yeah sort of uh enjoy the sort of lull <laughs> over the next couple of days and then uh, yeah just make sure you keep an eye out on those, those those warnings as we start to put them out for sunday
1: and into monday so for the minute i'll just sit with the humidity and the heat that that's bringing but the rain not not coming yet for a couple more days
0: yeah, that's right. Still a bit of rainfall on the cards for up in the northeast today. Um, but otherwise, um, yeah, Sunday and Monday is when it's picking up
1: again. Okay. And any other warnings that we should know about? Uh, no, that's it on the
0: on the warnings front. Just those those three flood warnings um, on the cards at the moment. And um, yeah, then we're heading into that slightly more relaxed period just for a couple of days. Should be
1: good. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, there, Joanna. No worries, Joanna. Have a lovely rest of the country half hour. <laughs> Thanks, and you. That's uh, Senior Forecaster Joanna Hughes from the Bureau of Meteorology there. Well, it's the season for wiener sales, with Colac's one-day event yesterday offering more than 3,000 calves. Uh, And as we've heard from some other sales this week, agents say that the quality has been high this year, but when it comes to dollar amounts, Jesse Brown from the HF Richardson Livestock Agency says the historic sale de- delivered some softer prices than last year's sale.
2: One of the bigger we've seen here at Carlac for a long time. Uh, we yarded uh, just shy of 3,300 cattle, about 2,000 steers and 1,300 heifers, all genuine uh, autumn drop weaners from the local districts.
1: And is this an important sale for the district?
2: Oh, it certainly is. It's um, yeah, known as the Birrigarra Wiener sale and it's a it's a feature event each year that quite a number of producers locally aim to target and, you know, prepare their cattle for. Um, it's one of probably the, the bigger sales that we have on our calendar here in
1: Colac. What makes it so special?
2: Oh, I think it's just the prestige and the history in that there's a lot of people that, you know, for previous generations have been selling here, so they sell here and um, it's been going for, yeah, some time started off in Birrigarra and then moved up here to Colac to, when the new selling centre Opened, as I understand, and, um, yeah, it's just, it carries a bit of prestige and generally gets one of our uh, prettier runs of cattle that we yard throughout the year here. And so
1: 3,300 uh, calves on offer. Um, yes, what was the quality correct.
2: like? Uh, yeah, quality was very good. A lot of calves showing quite a bit of weight, you know. There was, I think, the heaviest pen of calves of the day were 455 or 60 kilos for a pen of Charolais cross calves, but the best best years were 450 kilos. And quite a run of cattle in the 350 or 60 kilos through to that 4, 10 or 20. Quite a number of those. And even heifers were displaying quite a bit of weight. A lot of heifers uh, just nudging 400, if not, yeah, very high threes.
1: What were buyers looking for this year?
2: So we saw buyers from a bit of distance away that we haven't seen here at Carlac before turn up. And they, they came with quite a few orders that in, in general, most things were fairly well sought after. Probably some of the highlights of the sale were the Eurobred steers. So your Charolais and your Cimentels, they sold very, very well. Probably outsold the, the Angus steers on a sense of kilo basis as a general run. But there, there was highlights throughout the Angus run, don't get me wrong. But yeah, generally those those better end black steers sold pretty handily to uh, generally local competition on those going in to do grass, grass jobs for a bullet program.
1: And what sort of prices uh, were you looking at?
2: Uh, so best price of the day was uh, thirteen hundred and forty dollars, which went to um, local producers Mark and Leah Jacobs from Dreite. But then in, in your black steers over three hundred and sixty kilos, we we're looking at that two dollars eighty-five to three dollars, um, with a couple of sales exceeding that and making out to sort of three forty or fifty. But that was very select throughout. The next cut down the three thirty to sixty kilo steers were two dollars eighty to say three thirty. Then 300 to 330 kilo steers are sort of that 290 to 320. And as you got under 300, this demand kicked in as the steers started to run out. And we saw steers making 360 and 70 out there. And then in the, the coloured cattle, the Herefords, you know, there was a lot of steers making 275 or 80. And then take a step back in the wait to 285 90, to sort of that ninety ninety five. Maybe the odd pen pushing $3. Uh, in the uh, European section, yeah, a lot of steers making 3 to 305 across the board. Um, both for heavy and lighter weight calves. And then in our heifer run, we had some pretty handy heifers that were, you know, pushing that $2.80. I think there was one sale, I can't remember the exact value they made there, but they made well in excess of $3 to go back to the bull, but they were ex-stud heifers um, that are probably bought by the same person year in, year out. And then, yeah, our our secondary run Angus heifers and our coloured heifers were around that $2.30 to $2.50.
1: And how does that all compare to the sale last year?
2: Look, definitely a lot softer than last year. And that's that's a lot of vendors had prepared themselves for that on, on the events of the last twelve months and the cattle job doing the way it's gone and um so yeah, definitely cheaper. Uh probably probably five or six hundred bucks cheaper on, on select runs of steers throughout the yarding.
1: That seems fairly significant. Yeah, it,
2: it is. It is. A lot of lot of steers here this time last year. I think the best steers here last year made from memory, twenty one hundred bucks. So, and that was the the older brothers of the steers at the top of sale this year, so they made thirteen forty. So if you I think there's 750 but a lot of steers would be, yeah, that five or $600 cheaper for sure.
1: So just in general, what was the kind of temperature of, of folks who were there? Was it, were, were most people happy with the outcomes?
2: Most people were, were pleased with what they um, received and I, well, that I've spoken to anyone within air client base. And I think most of them had prepared themselves for the current, current climate. You know, I don't think there was too many that came in with over-the-top expectations. I think the key at the moment for producers is be realistic and not over the top of, of where their stock lie and, and those that are, you know, if they they exceed their expectations, well, they should be good and happy in the current climate.
1: That's livestock agent Jesse Brown. They're giving us a review of the Colac wiener sale from yesterday. Uh, There were also wiener sales at Mortlake's Western Victoria Livestock Exchange earlier today, uh, and the Northern Vic wiener sales are continuing across the weekend into the weekend. And there's also the Yay Goulburn Rivers annual classic wiener sale on tomorrow, and there will be plenty more wiener sales on next week as well. A couple of texts coming in. Neil at Pranjip near Yaroa says he got 68 millimetres in the last two days. Power has been off for 28 and a half hours. That's quite a specific number there. Thanks for that text there, Neil. Uh, and Jemmy at Wangaratta says sideways rain measured 20 millimetres two nights ago in Wangaratta. Uh, Julia next door measured. 112 millimetres in the same period uh, and they're still cleaning up after it. Thanks for your text there. You can drop me a line 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. It's 48 minutes past 12. Well, more than 100 farmers in Western Victoria have formed a group to campaign against a wind farm that's proposed for construction on or adjacent to their land. The company RWE plans to build 145 turbines in the Wimmera at Campbell's Bridge between Saul and Rapanyup. Paul Oxbrow, a Rapunyup farmer and member of the Southern Wimmera Renewables Research Association, says the community isn't happy about the proposal.
3: Yeah, we've just got a, quite a few concerns, Angus. Um, most of the, uh, the the proposed wind farm or factory is in a in a natural floodplain between the, the Richardson River and the Dunmunkle Creek. It's very very flat. The topography there and. Yeah, any uh, interruption to the landscape will bank water up for quite a considerable distance. Um, yeah, it just doesn't make sense to uh, put infrastructure into a, a flood floodplain. Other concerns we do have along the lines of the rehabilitation after the turbines have been con- been decommissioned, uh, there's no um, nothing legislated at this stage, so... Our concerns would be that in uh, 20 or 30 years' time that our landscape is left littered with uh, these monstrous turbines.
4: As well, another concern I understand is that the proposed location for these turbines is quite close to uh, a couple of farmhouses?
3: That's correct, Angus. Um, there's quite a few uh, houses of of non-hosts that are, uh, that are within a... A kilometre and a half, 1.6 kilometres of a, uh, of a turbine. We've been speaking, also speaking, with a number of people from other areas, as in the Stockyard Hill. There's a, a gentleman or a family down there that live 1.9 kilometres from three turbines. They don't host them. Uh, his two daughters go to sleep wearing earmuffs, because of the noise that's generated from these turbines. At the moment, a turbine can be placed within one kilometre of a, of a residence. The research that our group is doing, that we're finding out that uh, five kilometres should be a bare minimum from a non-host house to have
4: no impact on that, uh, on that family. So, when you're living close to the turbines but not hosting them you're you've got the negatives without the the financial benefit.
3: yeah, that's correct, depending on the humidity and and the wind direction and that sort of thing, but uh, there's a constant
4: noise that comes from from these turbines. How about your your view on the the transmission lines that are required to that would be required to transmit the electricity that the turbines would generate, because this part of the world is also roughly the area for the uh, Victoria, New South Wales interconnector project, which there is, which has also created a great deal of angst. (laughs) To
3: me, it just makes sense that you would put what's going to produce the energy, you put it where the energy is required. So you'd put it in the, around the cities, wouldn't you? Why, why would you put it out here and, have to transport it so so far.
4: And your group, Paul, is calling for a, a Senate inquiry into the federal government's climate change strategy? Yeah, that's correct, Angus, yeah. You're also saying that uh, and until that inquiry is done that you want a, a moratorium on all renewable energy projects? Yeah, that's also correct, Angus. Do you have any prospect of, of those two things happening, do you think? Oh, I think... Um
3: there's a lot of, we have a, a lot of members that are very concerned about the, uh, or opposed to the, the Campbell's Bridge Wind Farm. So the, at the end of the day, the community doesn't want it, or well, majority of the community doesn't want it. Uh, we can't see a lot of good coming from it. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. There's a lot of passionate people opposed to it. So I'm sure uh, common sense will prevail in the end.
4: On the flip side though, I understand that the hosts, so the, the landowners who would host these turbines would receive around forty two thousand dollars per turbine per year. Um so on an individual basis, are there going to be people who who do want the turbines because they think it could be a good money maker for them?
3: Yeah, that's correct, Angus. It's um just the way RWE go about their their business. They um Seem to pick on vulnerable people and talk them into uh, to hosting.
4: Your group's also addressing the the highly contentious issue of of nuclear energy, and you're saying that you you want the moratorium that we have here in Australia on nuclear energy to be lifted, and and for nuclear energy to possibly be pursued as as an alternative to renewable projects like these.
3: Yeah, it's definitely worth um, exploring. From what I've read, it does make sense. There's a, an enormous amount of, en- of yeah, energy will come out of nuclear.
4: Politically, though, Paul, when we look at both the, the state and federal governments, both the Labor governments at both levels, clearly they, they seem to have shown a, a political commitment to renewables, uh, to projects like this one, projects like VNI West. Uh, I mean, that, that commitment seems unwavering. So as long as... We have these incumbent governments. Do you really think their position is going to change?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure, Angus. I would like to think so. There is a a, a lot of gaining opposition here. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, yeah, common sense will prevail. And we are uh, been speaking with the planning minister, Sonia Kilkenny, and um, the commissioner, uh, Andrew Dyer as well so we're we're getting further up the up the ladder and um
4: yeah I'm I'm hopeful that it will make a, a big difference. And Paul as as you mentioned your group you've called yourselves the Southern Wimmera Renewables Research Association uh so you've got research there in the, the title does that mean you're going to be doing research or, or commissioning research into renewables?
3: Yeah we're I guess we're researching uh more the impacts that uh, wind turbines are going to have on our communities and our, our farmland, the impacts that, uh, that that may be caused or, or will be caused. We've been speaking with a lot of other wind farm, both hosts and non-hosts, and, and finding out, I guess, the information that the turbine companies don't tell you. They seem to have a quite a a flat very broad overview of of who they are and what they what they're going to do and it's not till after that they get uh, get up and going that the the in, true impacts really uh, come out
1: that was paul oxbrow from the southern wimmera renewables research association speaking there with angus burley and the project proponent rwe was contacted for comment A couple of uh, reactions coming in on the text line. Mick pretty strongly disagreeing with uh, Paul there. Um, Another message with no name on says, if land is needed for solar farms, why not use the areas of median strips in most metro freeways? Not only high totals of land area, but located where the population density is highest. And Tom says... Well done, Turbine Neighbours. The blades are falling apart at multiple sites. Well, it's not just the energy sector that's looking to reduce its carbon footprint. The transport industry is also looking at ways of cutting emissions, and that could mean more green trucks on our roads. Logging business Fennel Forestry, which is located just over the South Australia border in Mount Gambier, is nine months into a two-year trial using an electric truck to transport logs from plantations to mills. Managing Director Wendy Fennell says economics and operational performance will determine what sort of fuels the trucking industry uses in the future and she told Josh Bryan why the company started the trial.
5: I could see there were targets being set by both government and corporate bodies and we need to determine how we're going to meet those targets and in the heavy vehicle transport industry it's not a change that can happen overnight. Lowering emissions is a long term strategy that needs to be starting to work through now, hence why I started this trial. We're nine months into a two-year trial to see if these technologies uh, actually work in real operations.
6: Yeah, could you tell me a little bit, I guess, about the, the pressure that's created by those targets? Um, you mentioned they're by government, but is it also something that you know certain companies are also putting in place?
5: Yeah, Australia's a long way behind the rest of the world and we're affected both indirectly and directly by international standards, whether it's the boards that uh, run the companies that we work for um, or it's the equipment manufacturers that we source our equipment from overseas. They're changing rapidly and quickly uh, and we need to keep up with what is going on internationally to uh, meet those targets that are being sent uh, worldwide.
6: And you mentioned that you're nine months into the trial now. How has it gone so far, I guess, just anecdotally?
5: Yeah, it's gone well. So, operationally, it's it's proving itself. Um, We're still working with government around the policy and the framework and regulations. We can't yet cut the same mass as a, for like, diesel B-double. So we're two tonne under that at the moment because the electric vehicle is two tonne heavier. So we need to increase the mass that we cart and we're stepping through that with the government around their infrastructure and, um, and so forth. And then looking at the economics of the uh, trial as well in regards to there's not energy credit uh, schemes in place yet where we get diesel fuel rebates, the incentive side around converting to zero-emission vehicles, whether it's electric or hydrogen, um, don't seem to be in place in practice. So just stepping through how uh, this works economically, what customers and government alike are prepared to pay for zero-emission vehicles.
6: From a practicality standpoint, how has it been in terms of the existing infrastructure to charge electric vehicles? Um, Has there been enough of that to allow for freighting?
5: No, it hasn't. So I had to invest in my own infrastructure um, because there's not public infrastructure available. And so my truck needs to come back to my depot each time to swap the batteries out. And they then are put on charge. It's a swap-and-go system, so the truck doesn't have to stand still any longer than 10 or 15 minutes. Um, And then another set of batteries goes into the charger, and that can be programmed to charge at uh, off-peak times if required, so we're not drawing on the grid when everyone else is. Yeah, the charging side of it has worked uh, seamlessly.
6: Has that been a challenge, I suppose, from an operational perspective compared to, you know, a normal truck that can just fill up on diesel? Yeah,
5: it has and so that's where we're now stepping through the economics of this and what does it mean to go to zero emissions and hence that's why I invested in this one truck to do a trial so that we can then look at what rate structures look like for zero emission vehicles so customers and government alike can understand what the environmental and economic results or implications are going to be from the heavy vehicle industry transitioning over to lower emissions. But there's plenty of different options to uh, reduce emissions in heavy vehicle transport. Uh, This is just one that suits the specific transport tasks that uh, we do locally with uh, logs going from the forest into the various mills. But there's plenty of other ways or different ways that can be looked at to reduce emissions. But I guess what we're really looking for is the government to give us that policy and regulation and framework so industry can come up with the solutions that we need to move towards the 2030 targets.
6: If there was better infrastructure in terms of particularly hydrogen-powered vehicles, um, recharging stations for those in our region, is that something that you... Uh, would consider, and do you think that's something that other companies would consider switching over to maybe more hydrogen fuel cell vehicles?
5: Yeah, and again, it will come down to how it performs operationally um, and also what is the economics of it, because freight is, is a service provider to customers, and so really the customers are the ones that are driving what they're prepared to pay for the service that we provide and then what is the capital cost of the vehicles that we'll now need to use. Whether it's going to be hybrid hydrogen diesel or whether it's going to be full electric, there's still a lot to work through. And considering we're about to move into 2024, uh, 2030 is not far away.
1: That's Fennel Forestry Managing Director Wendy Fennel speaking there with Josh Bryan. I find that really interesting, uh, really interesting trial. 10 to 15 minutes to switch out the battery. Interesting stuff. Oh. It is time for the markets Just the one today Wagga Lambs
7: with Leanne Ducks Good afternoon. The recent rainfall has injected renewed energy into the lamb market, prompting robust bidding from buyers eager to secure their share in a smaller offering of 20,000 lambs and 10,000 sheep. Despite not all major export or domestic processes being in operation, prices saw a significant surge in the opening market. On average, prices experienced an increase of $25 to $40, particularly as well-finished, neat shorn lambs fetching premium rates. Trade lambs reached a peak of 194 while heavier trade lambs 24 to 26 range commanded prices right up to $216 averaging 830 cents a kilogram carcass weight lambs in the 26 to 30 category sold from 216 to 244 and those exceeding 30 kilos carcass weight reached a high price of 255 light lambs also took centre stage with rates ranging from 108 to 145 the sheep sales yet to commence adding anticipation to the unfolding market dynamics I'm Leanne Decks for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. And that is
1: all the time we've got for the country half hour today. I'm Fiona Broom. Thanks for your company and thanks for your texts today as well. I will be back with you tomorrow during the lunch break for the cricket. So if the weather holds out and play continues, I should be back with you again tomorrow just around 12.30. It's coming up to five minutes past one o'clock. Time to go back to the cricket. Catch you later.